let's dig in because we can get bogged down in uh, kind of comments and preface comments and all this sort of a thing. But here you are tonight. You knew the topic and you showed up. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll just say this before we kind of get into some specifics about some of the fun ways that we'll interact tonight. Is, is actually this topic that kind of sparked the idea of, hey, we need to find some better opportunities to unpack some of these topics. Because A, we get lots of questions about these topics. Uh, B, we know you're facing circumstances in your life, your workplaces, these things, where these are really relevant, pressing issues. And not everything fits. Not that we don't talk about stuff on Sunday morning, because we do, but it's not always the time for every discussion on a Sunday morning with interaction and these sorts of things. So hence creating another opportunity for that. Um, and so we're going to dig in. And I hope that, again, as we just started with that discussion question of what emotions does this sort of a conversation bring up for you? It's real. Uh, this isn't just hypothetical, like, oh, that'll be a fun topic. This is like real people that you know and Lord, how do we do this? And so those are some of the things that we're going to touch on tonight. You're here for a reason tonight. Um, not hypothetical and not just theoretical kind of a thing. And we want to hit it in that kind of a tone and a nature because that would just be respectful of the people that you know and love. Uh, and so let's dig in uh, tonight. If you would like to, you can take some notes and things. Um, but one thing we'll kind of just recognize right from the get-go is that this is a huge topic. Human sexuality is a gigantic thing. Uh, and it touches on a lot of different areas. And we won't have time to unpack every one of these angles. And so if we miss something, that's why we'll do Q&A so that you have the opportunity to perhaps get some of the questions answered that are more uh, particular for you. But this touches on anthropology. What is that? What does it mean to be human? Uh, and again, if we talk just, when I say the word sexuality, I'm talking the whole big umbrella of all types, all expressions of that thing. This is touching on anthropology. The theology of sin is a part of this issue. Uh, the cost of obedience, uh, identity, like this is a gigantic thing. So we're going to do our best to um, kind of recognize that not everything is just an easy, immediate, black and white kind of a thing. Are there things that are absolutely clear? Yes. Uh, but recognizing that there's just some ways that let's be thoughtful and, and be okay with that sort of a thing. Um, but as we begin as well, I want to just make sure we touch on this. I've been, I'm going to labor this one just one last time. How do we approach uh, challenging topics like these? Like how do we go about this? How do we engage with this topic? Number one, with a heap of humility. You don't know everyone's story. You don't know what they've walked through. And sometimes, again, the church can do, in, an, in a desire to commit to the truth, which we're going to get to that here in a second. It's in the list. But in a, sometimes we, in order to do that, we kind of get so immediately black and white, we don't actually leave room to recognize there's a human sitting across from us or other humans that are hearing what's being said. And we're sending messages to other people, even in the way we interact with certain topics. So can I give you an example? Like, and many of you have probably heard stories like this. Our culture has changed on some of these topics, and even the language in the church has changed significantly 
uh, through the, the, even through my, I'm, I'm almost 40 now, so through the decades uh, of my life. But I remember that there were times where it wasn't unusual that Christians would use extremely kind of homophobic language and no one thought it was unusual to suggest that we should, I, I'm not, this is terrible, I'm saying this is terrible, but I heard on more than one occasion, we should just gather all them up and put them on an island. Like, those sorts of things have been said in the church, and I think that, again, uh, misses the mark on the humility and the love side of things. Praise the Lord. I see a lot of, we're, we're, I, we want to make sure we're lay, layering this in here. Uh, again, with this idea of love, the church has often missed this one, but also we got to recognize our culture's definition of love has changed. So when I say love, I mean compassion, thoughtfulness, grace, not compromise, but, but a way to approach someone, looking them in the eye, spending time to understand their journey. How did you get here? What are some, all of that sort of a stuff. Our culture, though, would say a night like this is not loving to begin with, right? Uh, because we, we are, we are going to teach certain things in certain ways. The culture's definition of love is a bit different. But I'm saying let's engage like Jesus engaged people people even in sexual sin. For example, the woman caught in, in adultery. Jesus was loving, but he still called sin, sin. Um, and then there's the last, which is the third thing. Let, we have to make sure we continue to engage in the truth. And here's one of the areas that because of love and a desire to be kind, many even in the church have been willing to compromise on the truth side of things in order to do the other ones well. And I'm saying as we engage with this, we somehow, Lord, help us do all of those things at the same time. And it's a relevant one in the world today. There's mega church pastors, heavily influential mega church pastors that recently, recent months have gone like affirming on sexuality of all sorts. The Church of England is debating uh, they, their bishops made a change in their policy where they'll bless, for example, same-sex unions now in the Church of England. So these aren't, again, random little conversations. These are big conversations that the church as a whole is dealing with. But what might we also do that uh, with a commitment to biblical authority? That's a huge underlining, uh, underpinning thing for us. That's why we started with biblical authority last time. Because if we don't nail that one, then what's the point of this conversation? If the Bible's not God's word, then fill your boots. Go for it. But if it is God's word, well, then now we have to navigate a conversation in a slightly, in, not a different way, but in a, with a commitment for the truth. And so you're on board. I can see your nodding faces. So what we're going to do is we are going to consider our starting point on the topic of sexuality. And what, again, we're talking about right now is the big picture sexuality. We're not high holding in on this, that, or the other. We're talking the big picture of sexuality. And one thing we need to do is recognize where is our starting point in conversations about sexuality. Sometimes we can feel tempted to start with emotional stories, and emotions aren't bad. God you gave, those, you, uh, gave you those two. Or we start with, well, I know this person, and then we build off our discussion. But our starting point needs to be the Word of God. And in particular, the one, the area that I want to begin with today is actually the book of Genesis, God's created order. And there's a reason we're starting in this place, because this is the way 
that Old Testament believers define sexuality. Jesus defined sexuality based on Genesis. The early church defined sexuality based on the creation order of Genesis. And the church of Jesus, for basically all of the last 2,000 years, sorry, have also looked back to the creation order as the fundamental text for us to understand sexuality. Which I'll throw this out. Christians of a huge variety. I'm talking about Catholics, Orthodox, Evangelicals, Pentecostals, Reformed, you name a Christian group. And we disagree on some stuff sincerely. But isn't it interesting for the last 2,000 years, we haven't disagreed on God's design for sexuality up until perhaps the last 50 to 70 years, give or take. It's interesting. Yet now many would want to suggest to Christians, is the Bible really that clear on these issues? When Christians across the board for millennia have all said, and then if you look at the uh, Jews before that, that based their, uh, their values about sexuality too on the exact same passages, that some of that, is it that clear, has some different motives. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But let's get to some fundamental understanding about sexuality. Let's read some scripture. Are you good with that? Okay, if you've got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, we'll read a few verses um, excuse me. Genesis 1, verse 26 says this. Then God said, so after he's made all the other stuff, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God makes humans, gives them dominion, gives us a job to do, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We learn a lot in those verses. We learn about the value of all humans because God made humans as the pinnacle of his creation. We are made in God's image. This is why we believe in things like from conception till God determined death, you have value and significance and we should extend love and care and compassion for humans out of the, these passages, right? The image of God. God blesses them, but we also begin a picture that sexuality is an intrinsic part of also God's design. God makes, again, I just super contra, it's so funny that I, I say some things or I'm about to say them. I'm like, oh man, like it's not that controversial, but God made male and female with complementary roles and particularly when we're talking sexuality, complementary functions. I think that's all we need to say. Uh, I, anyways, I'm going to not run down that rabbit trail. Okay. But also, we see God blessing them, this unique status, this blessing of the Lord. And then God gives them a command, be fruitful and multiply. What's God telling Adam and Eve? Make babies. And then, so here's one of these big ideas that we need to start with. Sexuality is a gift from God. It's his idea. He thought it would be awesome. And we don't need to kind of get in any more specificity beyond that to say, 
God designed it in a way that he figured we would probably like it too. That's all we need to say. It is God's beautiful gift. One of his many beautiful gifts to humankind. So again, no wonder the enemy wants to run in and steal and destroy and diminish and pervert a wonderful gift. But we have to start with a pause. Sometimes the church over the years, I'm not talking about Gateway in particular, but the church in general, there are even seasons where the church can be maybe a bit like prudish or anti-sex kind of could send that message. Like sex is this terribly dirty thing and we should never talk about it. And I've heard stories over the years of young, wonderful Christian people that get married and they're virgins and they have a really hard time figuring stuff out because they have a hard time then all of a sudden being told it's now wonderful and the whole rest of their lives they were told it was dirty and shameful and bad. And now they're like, but then now how do we, do you see how the church can sometimes even skew this? We don't, again, we need to be appropriate and modest and all those wonderful things. But also as believers, we don't need to shy away from the topics of sexuality. It's a wonderful gift from God. And often we begin with the negative, don't, don't, don't. And we forget to paint the picture for our young people, for people in our lives about God's positive, fantastic ideas. About, like we sometimes miss that. I think we got to like raw, raw things like uh, We'll get to that later. Like things like marriage. The church should be like super pro marriage. Can I get an amen? And singleness. It's harder to get an amen for that one. But we'll get to that in a moment. Right now we're getting a starting point and building some of these layers in. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And then the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make, a help, uh, make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he uh, would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And man gave them names, or man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the, uh, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. And like this verse 24 is like essential keystone verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, this is adding to the context of Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative. A couple things. Well, we're going to do a whole other night at some point about like women and ministry and, and that sort of stuff. So we'll get into some of that gendered stuff on another day, okay? So I'm not, I'm not ignoring that there's some really cool things in there, but also we're focusing in on a particular tack where that verse 24 then is quoted throughout the rest of the Bible as the foundation to understanding human sexuality. So we've got to start somewhere. We start with God's very good design. It's wonderful. Um, 
And so we see, let's go to the next slide there, the centrality of the Genesis narrative. We learn about gender. We learn about equality. That's an old other night that we'll do. We learn about marriage and the nature of marriage. Uh, that in this sense, in that verse, especially verse 24, is attached to marriage in the Jewish mind, in the first century church's mind, inextricably linked. This idea that what marriage is, is the joining together of a man and a woman for support, encouragement, but also the rearing of children. Um, it's one of these things in our, in our culture today where we, we're calling a lot of things like marriage, but they don't even meet the definition of marriage. God, God's desi desi defined and designed these things. And so we'll get back to again, some of these things in a second. We learn about sexuality. We learn about family. All from these, not that many verses in the book of Genesis. A positive and then therefore assumed foundational understanding of sexuality as then expressed in the whole rest of the scripture. And so here's the thing. Sexuality... Um, as we talk about biblical sexuality, the expression of which kind of, it comes with two options. Are you ready for this? Faithful marriage or singleness. And again, that's, it seems so like just two options. Well, that's all of the rest of the biblical teaching on sexuality assumes that. And we'll get back to singleness in a little bit, but I want to touch on marriage and sexuality that's the place where God has designed sexuality, the sexual expression to exist in the, in the, the safety, in the commitment, in the love uh, of marriage. Keys to marriage, sex difference. Why God designed it? Why also? Because marriage is the best place for the rearing of children. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And I don't have time today to unpack all of the statistics that would, uh, non-Christian social science statistic that prove the case over and over again that children raised by their biological mother and father fare better on almost any score that you can find. It's like God had a plan for the stability and the raising of children um, these are key to our understanding. And in our culture, this feels super offensive to say. Um, but sometimes we've got to, rec uh, again, I've, there's a lot of reading that I, you can do and some stuff I'll recommend later on tonight so that you could do some research and look into some of these topics. But uh, what we're doing is painting this positive picture first before we look at some of the prohibitions in Scripture. We've got to know where we're starting before we can talk about some of the other stuff. So, again, some key attributes of marriage, uh, in particular, sex difference, companionship, and procreation being a thing, uh, a key part of, of God's design. Okay, let's keep moving forward. Jesus and sexuality. I'm wanting to make the very clear statement that Jesus, a first century Jew, had the same biblical ethic about sexuality based on the Old Testament as the Old Testament taught. Um, how do we know that? Jesus quoted Genesis to defend marriage. So let's look at that. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So again, this is a particular question about Divorce, but divorce attaches to marriage. And that idea of marriage 
was rooted and connected to what Jesus's culture, the Bible, the Old Testament had already taught about marriage. Are you seeing that chain? It's not some new idea that came up, but this is a flow and a connection to these things. And Jesus answered and said, have you not read? They're asking a question about marriage, sexuality, and he's like, well, the Bible would have answered this for you. So he goes on and says that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And Jesus said, therefore, quoting Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. What was the beginning? God's perfect standard in Genesis. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Again, Jesus starts with a picture of human sexuality. And now adultery fits outside of that beautiful plan. So tonight, we're not just talking about homosexuality or things like that. We're also talking about other things, things like adultery. This is why, again, some of these topics are hard to talk about because we're talking about people that we know and love. But let's keep going. The disciples said to them, as such is the case uh, of a man, uh, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? Well, that's a very interesting question. What are the disciples discerning that there's two options for the expression of human sexuality in marriage and in singleness. And so he goes on to, or they, uh, Jesus goes on to say, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so Jesus teaches this, here this teaching about singleness and eunuchs are people that, uh, there's different kinds of eunuchs. Some, guys, some kings would be like, I need some guys to help take care of my many wives, which we don't have time to unpack that one today. So who do you get to help them out? You get a eunuch, but you don't want your eunuch, you know, partic- you know treating your wives in funny ways so they would castrate the eunuch so that he could be used to care for. So that's, a, a, I'm just trying to unpack what Jesus said. Here it is, a bit awkward. There are eunuchs that have been uh, made eunuchs by men. That's what we're talking about. But there are others that have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes people will say, but Jesus didn't understand. He didn't know about homosexuality like we know about homosexuality. To which I must say, if Jesus is the Son of God, who are we to say he did not know things that based on the historical record were clearly to be known? And here Jesus is talking about people for the sake of the kingdom of heaven who have made themselves eunuchs. What does that mean? They voluntarily, they become single for the sake of other purposes. There's another single person in this passage. Jesus. Sometimes we miss that. Was Jesus a fulfilled human being in the flesh? I think so. But he, and he somehow managed it as a single person. 
Huh. Because again, sometimes we can be like single, second class. And I'm like, if Jesus voluntarily chose that for the sake of his ministry and calling, this isn't second class. The, the non-marrieds are in this category. This is God has great plans. And we embrace the gifts that he's given us, the callings that he's given us in our lives, and the way that we steward ourselves in our sexuality. So once again, we see Jesus hearkening back to the created order. We see this picture of the one flesh union that is marriage between a man and a woman, a, a lifelong faithful commitment one to another. Oopsies, there we go. Uh, we also see the two options, faithful marriage or chaste singleness um, being the teaching of Jesus. I'm looking at the clock. Let's go a little bit faster. Okay, the early church, but we're not going to try to miss anything. The early church then, surprise, surprise, teaches the same stuff that the Jews taught in the Old Testament, Jesus affirmed in the Gospels, then the early church teaches the same biblical ethic. It's consistent. Ephesians 5, to 33 says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sometimes you start reading these pet verses and it's like, uh-oh, the ladies are going to get upset when we talk about submission. But then we get to the guys who are called to sacrificially give of themselves in love to their wives. There's mutuality in marriage. Like, we just got to read the context of this. But let's keep reading. Um, so that he might present the church to himself. This is talking about Jesus uh, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as, G as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hearkening back to where we started, Genesis, God's positive picture for human sexuality is the consistent foundation for the Jews, for Jesus, and for the early church. And then building off of that for almost all of church history up until the last 50 to 60 years. I'm wanting to paint a picture that this is not unclear. It's just sometimes uncomfortable, the ramifications of what the Bible teaches. So let's keep going on, though, because uh, we see a few more things. Um, and they shall become flesh, one flesh. Verse 32, the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you, uh, one of you, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's something, another layer that we want to add into this, too. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And here's the thing about the biblical definition of marriage, is it assumes a sex difference. In the Jesus and the church marriage metaphor, the church is called the bride of Christ. And Jesus is like the groom or in, the, in this picture, right? Marriage isn't also just about procreation. Marriage is also a wonderful picturing of the love of Jesus for his church. Marriage points us to greater reality 
And I want to suggest other forms of marriage. And there's a lot of people advocating for various different definitions of marriage that include uh, two or more. All of those lose out on picturing that image that God baked into the system that marriage is about even more than just your own, the two of you, your happiness. It's a picture of a greater reality. Again, flowing back to the starting of these ideas in Genesis. So again, when we talk about sexuality, we don't need to be afraid. We should be appropriate but not feel awkward to talk about these things. It's God's great design. And it points us and, and ties into God's uh, revelation to us throughout different places of Scripture. God wants stable married relationships. It's the best, yes, the best place for raising uh, children and the like. But also recognizing that the early church, Jesus taught a picture that sexuality was meant for the confines of marriage and outside of that, chastity or singleness. Not as a second tier, but as a different way to express loyalty and commitment to the Lord like Jesus himself. So I, I want to start with the positive side of things. It's a good gift. Human flourishing, so on and so forth. And it's one of these thought, thought experiments. We've talked about this before. What if everybody in the world just agreed with God's idea about sexuality, faithful marriage, or chaste singleness? What if everyone just did that consistently? Wouldn't that be wonderful? There'd be no unplanned pregnancies. There'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. There wouldn't be the heartbreak uh, of, of, div of divorce and all of these sorts of things if people just, it's like God had a good idea and good intentions for people. And again, rubber meets the road. We, we're humans and we know humans. That again, we could kind of then on the extreme have this super squeaky clean and everything. God is gracious and God is at work and forgiving and kind. But we have to be able to positively talk about where do we start with? And then have some conversations about, okay, where do we go from here in your circumstance? And how do we navigate these things together? And so when we talk about the application of these principles, it touches on a lot of topics and we won't get into all of them specifically tonight. But applying God's good picture touches on things like adultery, Fornication, that's a long word that we don't use very much anymore. But fornication means shacking up before you're married, right? Like, let's just say it for what it is. It touches on other topics like incest and homosexuality, the use of pornography, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The New Testament church wasn't afraid to talk about sexual sin that broke God's beautiful picture, not because God's arbitrary and mean, but because God is loving and knows what's best for humans and calls us to this place of honoring him in those areas in our lives. But I know that for tonight, most of us, uh, it's not as hard of a topic talking about some of the other ones, although we should and we should be consistent. But I know for most of us, what we're really wanting to, we're having the hardest time wrestling with is the questions regarding homosexuality, and so that's what we're going to focus on tonight. Not because, in one sense, it's this extra class of, like, the worst of the worst. The Bible lists homosexuality with a bunch of other sexual sins. They're all big deals. But we just recognize that this is where a lot of the questions that we get are coming from, so that's why we're honing in. We're not honing in for the sake of kind of loading on an extra heap of something else, 
I just want to kind of talk about our heart. Okay, let's go quick. Primary passages, um, which some people like to call clobber passages, but I think they're misidentifying scriptures for a political, for a certain, not political, but for a certain objective. People want to kind of look down on these passages that we're going to look at. This is, this is, because there are some people, ugh, uh, how do I say this super graciously? Christians, like I, I want to be super sensitive, that would say, uh, that basically end in a place where they, de- they diminish the authority of God's word because they know better. And I wish there was a nicer way to say it. Um, and so then they start to talk very poorly about these passages as clobber passages giving it a negative impression so that we would then, well, we know better. Well, is God's word God's word or not? You can listen to our, our Q&A and our teaching from last time about that. So I want to, another reason that I want to talk about these passages, because many people will say, yeah, but those verses in the Bible, those words were either translated wrong, they came up with the word later, it's not in the original language, so on and so forth, all of these super common things. And if you're a believer that's never wrestled with these, these verses, you might think they have a leg to stand on. I have never heard one good, solid objection to any of these verses because all of the objections end up going to the place of, I just disagree and don't want it to say that. And, and I've done the reading. I've looked at the Greek. I've looked at the Hebrew, and we don't have time to unpack it all tonight, but I'm saying I'm very confident that if you do, and, and for Christianity, the Bible is, an, there's resources that open this book to you. You can do the study of the Greek and the Hebrew, your own self. You can see the transmission of Scripture through the ages. And I have yet to see any compelling evidence that we would cause us to throw these verses out of the Bible or understand them differently than the church has understood for the last 2,000 years. So why am I saying that? We need to be prepared with answers to the objections that people come at us with. Because it happens all the time. Well, did you know that that word was not used that way? Did you know they did not understand these things? Did you, they, all of these objections are common. There's nothing new under the sun. Even the newest books that would su- uh, support a pro um, or an affirming stance for Christians, it's all the same old arguments repackaged in slightly different ways, but the conclusion is still basically the same. The scripture holds up, and the only wrestle is, will we submit to the teaching of God's word? Okay, let's look at some of these verses. Uh, a couple of them. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. And here's one that's often kind of thrown under the bus uh, because it's found in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. I'm going to actually open it in a paper Bible. Um, says this. You shall not lie with a a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you're like, well, okay, like where do we go from here in this conversation? But some would say, but ah, that's in the old covenant. And we don't follow other laws that are in the old covenant. The classic ones being like people will respond. Are you wearing more than one type of fabric right now? And they think, gotcha. Because of that, we can permit this. Here's my contention. You can, if you even eliminate it, let's say you eliminate those four, these four verses from the scripture, you would still make a strong biblical argument 
for God's picture of sexuality because it's not unclear. But I don't see any good reason to throw them out of the Bible. And so, for example, people say, yeah, but are you wearing clothes of more than one, two? Is, this, is that poly cotton that you're wearing today? Therefore, we should abandon all the other consistent teaching of Scripture. Who's heard that argument before? Wave your hand at me. I know some of you have. But if we look at even at the verses on either side of Leviticus 18, verse 22, it says in verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. That was a false god. And so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. So the verse before says, don't burn your children alive in the sacrifice to false gods. Do you think that still morally applies to humans today? And then the next verse um, says, context is important, right? And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It's a perversion. Now, it's kind of gross to read that out loud, but it's in the Bible. Are we going to make the same argument for other verses directly related in context? And then here's the other thing that I want to encourage you as a believer. When a non-believer thinks they've out-Bibled you, you have to recognize they've given you a wonderful opportunity. But the Bible says that you can't wear clothes of more than one fabric, says the person parroting the other person they heard say the exact same thing that's never read the Bible, is not committed to biblical authority. You have a wonderful opportunity to not be mean, but to be really gracious to then begin a conversation about, oh, so you do think about God's word. How do you apply that to your life? Like if you're going to quote scripture at me, they should have more than just a repeated line. So again, don't be afraid. Don't be a jerk. You know, uh, be gracious. Ask some really good questions about how, or here's a great one when somebody says that. How did you come to that conclusion? And they just let it hang. Because what they're going to say is, if they're honest, is I heard somebody else say that, and I'm just saying it because they said it, which is not a strong argument. Now, are Christians today bound to every rule in the Old Covenant? No, obviously not. But are we still bound to the moral teaching of God's word as affirmed by Jesus in the early church? Yes. So it's not scary when somebody wants to come back at you. You should be confident. And the good thing, too, is to dig in so that you're ready with some good answers. But number one, don't be afraid. And don't be like, oh, I, I don't know the Bible. Enough. Like, don't, anyways. I want to encourage you. Okay, a couple other verses for us to consider. One is the book of Romans, Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God gave them up, and this you have to read the whole context for the whole thing. We're jumping in. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, uh, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's talking about the depravity of humankind. And when humans abandon the right worship of God, things get messy really, really quick. And, and, and God gives them over and says, like, all right, if you're going to choose that, off you go. And what ends up happening is this spiral into, this, into other uh, things. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What are these dishonorable passions? Their women exchanged natural uh, relations for those which are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
Men committing sameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do, uh, to do what ought not to be done. This is New Testament teaching, church. And is it fun to read it out loud in 2023 when you know if you talk about this in certain angles, you're going to be ready for the firestorm and all of these sorts of things? But if God's word is God's word, that's the place we find ourselves in. How will we navigate these things? The Bible, whenever it's talking about uh, sexuality outside the confines of marriage, always speaks negatively of it. And in particular, when we're talking about this issue of, of homosexuality, it all, the Bible is consistent in its uh, rejection of it as an option for God's people. And again, some would say, but they were talking about different things back then. They were talking about older men having sex with younger men as what was common in the Greek culture of that day. That was normal behavior. And for us, we're like, okay. Like, and why do we think it's odd? Because of the influence of the Christian church over the West. There's a reason that we think that that's not okay. But in this passage, it's really clear. God gave, they were consumed with passion for one another. Because a lot of people say, but the Bible's not talking about committed homosexual marriage. Well, these, it's talking about something that was abusive, something that was uh, different levels of power and authority and all these things. The Bible didn't know that. Although there is historical records that show that the Greek and Roman world of Jesus' day did know about mutual lesbian and uh, gay relationships were known in that culture. There's historical evidence for it. The argument for many today is, but, but we're talking about different things. No, we're not. Maybe slightly different expression or an acceptance of it, but these things are consistent. Okay, two more verses quickly. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that uh, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Pause. That's a heavy statement. Why is this such a big deal? Because it's a salvation issue. Some people will say, and again, I've heard pastors that I love say this, and I've got to go back to them and be like, brother, you need to stop this argument. They'll say things like, until the church is willing to talk about gossip and willing to talk about uh, backbiting and arguing in the same way as same-sex uh, attraction and homosexuality, we should basically not talk about all of it. To which I say, have you read your Bible? The, again, are, is all sin sin? Yes, but does the Bible talk more harshly about some sins than others? Also, yes. Like these verses saying, do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And then it gives us a list of some sins, but not all of the sins. The Bible even says some sins lead to death and others don't. Like the Bible classifies and some people are like, well, we're stratifying sin. And if we're doing that, we should basically, unless we're talking equally about everything, we'll not talk about anything, is a lie deceiving many evangelical pastors. But tonight I want to say out loud, the Bible is using salvation language and I don't want to mislead a single person in Jesus' name. Because if it's a matter of them not inheriting the kingdom of God, who are we to say, go on ahead? Go and sin your sin when the Bible's using this language. Who are we? And now I know it's not popular, and there's flack, and there's fire, and all of these sorts of things. 
But it's God's word, God's word. And if it's not, like this is, this is why it raises to this different level. And again, the Bible also doesn't only put homosexuality in this list. We've got to make sure we're being thoughtful. It says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty heavy list, hey? And like half of them are sexual sin. Why? Because the and heterosexual and homosexual sin. Last time I checked, we don't go to an adulterer and say, you're just an adulterer at heart. Keep on going. And I, it's an extreme statement, but do you know what I mean? We say, bud, you, you've missed God's beautiful picture. You're marring it. You're damaging others. And so again, I want to make sure it's, uh, and, and again, this is one of those verses we'll say, but yes, the word Paul used in Greek, uh, uh, Arsenikoitois, and then another one that I'm blanking on at the, t- the moment because I didn't want to get into the Greek minutia today. They'll be like, but those words meant other things. Prove it. Because it doesn't. It means what it says. But the word homosexual didn't exist until this. Yes, but that's the clearest de- English translation of those Greek words. Men who lie with men. And in our day and age, we define that as homosexual. So some really weak arguments, but if you're not prepared, you're like, oh, and the cards fall because we don't have anything to say, and we don't respond back aggressively. We just resp- how did you come to that conclusion that you feel those Greek words are not, that English translation of those Greek words are not appropriate? How did you come to that conclusion? To which most people then say, like, I've, it's, ask good questions, because sometimes, like me, the temptation is to be like, Bible answer, man! When sometimes just asking the right question puts the ball back in their court, and they realize their argument falls apart. Anyways. Okay, but now here's this. Listen to this. Verse 11. And such were some of you. So he says to Christian believers, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. The story is not over. Praise the Lord. The hope of the gospel is available. And the last verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Salvation language. Do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Because we'll be tempted to be deceived. Yeah, but I know these people. Again, we want to be loving. It's so kind. And it's all, but the sexually immoral, idolaters, uh, adulterers, passive homosexual partners, and practicing homosexuals. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is consistent. I think that's from the NET. And it translates the words very literally, um, malakois and arsenikoitos, which are men that sleep with men. And uh, malakos means like effeminate. It's, it's the active and the passive partner in, uh, it, this is the, the words that are being translated. That's, it just sounds a bit different, the ESV. But nonetheless, we got to be serious about these things. And then again, we don't have time. Oh, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 6 to 11. Um, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in vain discussion, teaching, uh, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they are make confident assertions. Can we say the church in 2023? But it was also the church back then too. 
false teachers will abound on TikTok and on social media and on YouTube. It says it's branded different, but it's the same problems, right? People that are like, I know this, and it's like, well, but they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the, uh, uh, for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those that strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral. So again, it's a broad category of sexual immorality, which is everything outside of the two options the Bible praises and affirms, okay? So we're not just piling on one group. It's Lord help us all. Uh, It goes on, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, which sometimes we miss that, that the Bible condemns people stealing other humans to put them into slavery, okay? Uh, That's also not cool. Um, Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which we have been entrusted. So again, what am I saying? It's no surprise that people want to come and add unclarity to the clarity of Scripture. It's the same thing Paul warned Timothy about in the passages of Scripture. It's just branded cooler with a better marketing campaign. And it's so interesting in our world today. You, I can't even log into my bank account. Then my bank is trying to send messages to me about human sexuality. Is that weird? Like our culture, and now there's, we'll get into some of this stuff in a little bit. But okay, how do we engage with these issues? If you've got more questions, add them in the question and answer on the Slido. Okay, uh, let me read this statement. The teaching of Scripture and the witness of the church has been consistent and clear. We've already made that point, but I wanted to, like, make it so clear that I put it on the screen. Uh, Any lack of clarity or arguments for uncertainty don't come from the text, but from a flawed understanding of Scripture and a desire to adapt its clear meaning for other purposes or goals. That's what's happening. And I've done the research. I was listening to a debate, fascinating, at Oxford in England. Like, they have a debate club, and they discuss certain motions, and they have half of them are for and half are against. All of the scholars that get out for, and they debated uh, same-sex marriage, uh, like, three weeks ago, because this is a hot-button issue in England right now. And all the people that argued from the side of, no, we shouldn't, used scripture, thoughtfully applied, graciously communicated, uh, over and over and over again. And all the opposing views said, but that feels mean. And other arguments that were basically to that level, or God's word's not God's word. The lack of clarity is not coming because the Bible is unclear. It's being read in, and we just need to be clear about uh, those things. Okay, but for the sake of time, let's go on a little further. We're nearly there. Okay. How do we engage with these issues? Here are my four recommendations for us for tonight. Okay. Number one. Come to a conviction of the truth for yourself. If this is a hot button and a difficult issue for you because people in your life, workplace, or thing, then you need to dig in a little further to be able to come up with gracious and clear, biblically-based answers. Just like Jesus. What did he say when somebody challenged him on marriage and sexuality? He quoted, literally quoted the Bible. It's like he had a good idea. So, I want to encourage you to come to a conviction about the truth on this issue. Uh, Sometimes we're just like, oh, I'm just a little uncertain. I'll stay uncertain. No, like lean in. 
Let's do this thing. Because what we're going to do then, I think, is leave us in a place where we could possibly leave ourselves vulnerable because we've refused to actually agree with God and settle on an issue. We purposely set ourselves in a place that's this. And when we're in this, it's like, it's easier to shove you off that spot. Um, Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 says this. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Yes, being a Christian means you're different than the world around you. That's baked into the system. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Doesn't that describe our culture today? We've rejected God, and no wonder everything's getting so squirrely and weird. The Bible said that that would happen. And so for me, it affirms the Bible again because it's like, oh. Can we see how church, and again, church attendance is not the only marker of people actually being born again. I understand. But you can measure church attendance. As church attendance has declined in the West, what has increased? Sexual perversion, hopelessness, suicide. And yes, we could make a social science argument. Well, people are just missing those social connections that the church provides. I think beyond that, they're missing a rooting and grounding in the truth. And when everything is left to like, it can be whatever you want it to be. It can, and we're telling this to our children, you can be whoever you want to be. Your body doesn't tell you anything. Just choose whatever you want. No wonder our children, young people, are more confused, anxious, depressed, and all, because we've kicked out any stability underneath them and said, this is better for you. I'm just, this is some of the things that we need to be wrestling through as we come to a conviction about the truth. Uh, The next thing, recognize the world you live in. This is a hard conversation to have because when you have a conversation generally with sexuality with people, they don't live in the same world as you. What do I mean by that? Um, This is one of the most helpful illustrations I've heard in the last while, so here we go. I want you to hear about it as well. There's three circles. Are you ready for it, Antonio? But it's, it's not a Venn diagram. Don't worry about it. There's three worlds... And this has nothing to do with economics, but it's the first world, second world, and third world. Many of us go right to economics, right? Third world countries are the poor ones. First world ones are like Canada. It's not economics. We're talking about um, understanding of authority in a culture. Okay. First worlds are pagan cultures, but their authority is based in myth. So think like Sparta. They had these Greek gods and deities that they didn't necessarily believe with, but those myths were helpful because it unified their culture. And they would say, but our values, and that, hey, they'll tell a story to define their values and put a parameter and say, this is who we are. First world culture. Second world culture is a culture rooted in, and in God. And I'm only putting that in brackets because it applies to a Muslim culture, a Christian culture, uh, a Buddhist culture, maybe not, well, that one might be harder. I don't know enough to be as clear. But a second world culture is generally a culture where authority is rooted in an external authority, namely God or a creator, that that creator gets to define authority, right? 
So up until recently, the West has, I'm not saying every person in the West is a Christian, but the West has rooted our morality and our authority in the fact that at least a functional idea of God has existed, and he speaks the parameters in place, right? And I'm not saying um, that that means everyone in this culture is saved. I'm just meaning that culture as a general consensus thinks something outside of us decides what's right and wrong. Third world culture is completely rooted in the self. I decide. Not even you, Fred. Because <laughs> Fred's truth is not my truth. And Matt's truth is not Fred's truth. Your truth is yours. My truth is mine. My authority is mine. And whatever I like makes me happy is great. Canada used to kind of live in here, but over the last number of decades, this didn't happen in an instant, we've, can we concur that to a great extent we've moved here? This helps us understand why is it, like, how do, and so here's why this is a helpful picture. If someone from culture, let's change colors, I'm having a great time with the whiteboard today. Okay, if someone from culture two comes over to culture three and says, uh, adultery is sin. How do you think the person over here reacts? Well, maybe in some certain situations. But I know in this situation, that's probably a good thing. Well, and, and so, but we hear what I'm saying is that when you... If, oh, and can you... I'm really rushing to get a bunch of stuff in, Antonio. But so what I'm saying is that when somebody from culture two connects with somebody of culture three, inevitably there's going to be a clash. And why am I bringing this up? Because Christians, we need to recognize the world we live in, not the world we wish was or the world that was or the, wish, the way we wish it would be. This is where we're living. It's culture clash. You're a missionary. And what do missionaries need to do? They need to learn to speak another language to present the gospel to these people. And here's, there's a quote, Ivan, I think it's late in the thing. Uh, by Sam Albury. It's fantastic. I want to read it now. I wasn't sure where I'd throw it in, but I was like, we need to do it. Maybe one after? Is it the very end? Did I not put it in there? Ah. Well, his name was in there because I'm going to recommend one of his books. Oh, back. Well, is, that's just his name there. But Sam Albury has a great, a great quote that apparently I did not print like I wanted to. I didn't. Ah, that's too bad because I'm going to paraphrase it and I'll botch it and I'll, if you really want it, you can read his book, which I'll recommend to you later. Um, but basically makes the case. One thing we also should be really sensitive to, if you're coming from this culture to this culture and trying to lead someone to the Lord, you don't need to lead with sexuality. You need to lead with Jesus. And then eventually get around to those things. And it's not saying we don't, we don't but, but we've, got a, we've got a lot of work to do because these cultures are clashing. People, when you think about like what's, what, what's being, I think about what's being taught in public schools these days, and I'm like, I cannot fathom how anyone thinks this is okay. It's because I live here and they live there and they think it's okay. So church, I'm just saying, we've got to recognize this thing. So yes, this is hard. I'm only validating, it's hard. So we need to trust the Lord. We need to know what we believe. We need to allow the Spirit to lead us and guide us as we navigate this world because we want these people to know Jesus. And on sexuality, it's created this really artificial, awkward bridge. And so, Lord, help us figure out how to navigate through this. I've met with um, 
with uh, people, uh, some ladies that are, have been in, that are in lesbian marriages, and we're, I'm sitting down and talking, and I want to uh, get to know their story and chat, and they know where I stand, and I know where they stand, and, and have this sort of a thing through. But at the end of the day, there's this rift because they're living in this world, although they want to live in this one. And, and I, I don't have the master class, class of, and then it totally worked, and there was repentance and all. I don't have that all yet worked out. But I'm just saying is we need to be prayerfully considering and knowing where we start. So here's the thing. You're not going to argue someone from here to here. Live for Jesus. Let him transform your life. And then people will see, where did you get that hope? Because this world has no hope to offer. It has no peace. But we do. And now the Christian world is part of that puzzle, and we're part of it. Okay, two more points, and then let's get to some questions. Ad, uh, point number three. This sounds like an odd one, but I think it's so important. We, as believers, we need to advocate for healthy marriages. Because, again, coming back to the starting point of human sexuality is two options. Then, man, we should be the place with the healthiest marriages. Not the perfect ones, but healthy ones. So how do we speak about marriage? How do we encourage married couples uh, that are in our lives to say, well done? How do we speak positively of marriage, period, right? Sometimes we can rag as a culture because it's kind of funny to rag on marriage and all these sorts of things. It's a wonderful thing. But in that too, I also want to make sure, the last point there, we need to make room for singles. The church can often be really hard for single people. And now imagine this. You're a believer, and some, this might uh, beg some questions. It would totally would be wonderful. Sam Albury, who I'll recommend later, would put him, he's chosen to be single. Why? Because he battles with, he wrestles with same-sex attraction and says, my choice out of God-honoring God options is singleness or marriage. I'm choosing singleness. Now imagine being single in a church that so prizes marriages that there's no place for single people. And you've made a decision to choose singleness. What does the church need to do with single people? Invite them over for Christmas. Have them for dinner. Buy them a birthday present. Uh, say, come and watch a TV show with me tonight. Love on some singles. Because we want people that are single that have chosen that to know that you don't have to be single and lonely. That's a lie. Jesus was single. Paul was single. And they lived fulfilled Christian lives. But what did they have? Community. So we need to rally for community to be a safe place for all sorts of people, particularly as we think about people that are wrestling with same-sex attraction, that they know there's a safe place for them to be loved and in community for a long haul. You see why that's an important step in, this, in some of these pieces. Okay, last couple slides, and then we're going to throw up questions, which will be fun. Um, oh, no, that was from last one, but I thought I left it in there. This is for biblical authority. If Jesus and his disciples believed that the Bible was authoritative for belief and practice, why wouldn't we? I just thought, hey, we made that point last time, but it's just as much a point this time. What did God actually say? And so, church, what is love? Our culture is saying love, love, love is acceptance and all these sorts of things. We need to love people with kindness, being charitable. If you have homosexual neighbors, you should be good neighbors to your neighbor. Can I get an amen? Just like you would be a good neighbor to the non-Christian shacking up next door, you should be good neighbor to your homosexual coworker. Be a good neighbor. 
as you're, as you're a good neighbor to your Wiccan co-worker, you should be, you know what I mean? Uh, we need to be those that are, are quick to go serve and love. And that is, that is not compromise of the truth. That's saying, I got to win you to Jesus first. And then Jesus does some amazing transformation. So what is love? Our culture is saying love must mean you agree with all of my decisions and choices. That's not the biblical definition of love. But love is modeled to us by the sacrificial love of Jesus. I still think back to Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. her, Her problem was a sexual behavior problem. And Jesus says, I'm not gonna condemn you, but go and sin no more. He still draws the line. But it's this classic moment in the ministry of Jesus where like, man, he loved that woman, but he didn't compromise. And so in a similar way, Lord, help us to be those that wrestle in this dynamic of our culture with these issues as as we talk about them. Some recommended resources and then some questions. These books are amazing. Okay, first one. If If you really love to read and you love to read scholarly books, so for most of you, your eyes just rolled. Okay. I would recommend the rise, and, the rise of the Modern Self by Carl B. Truman. The first one there is two separate books. The Rise of the Modern Self is the scholarly one. Strange New World is the popular level book by Carl C. Truman. It is one of the best books I have read in a long time. And it, it, from, it's a Christian book. It explains how did we get here? How did our culture get to the place where a man stands up and says, I'm a woman, and people are saying, okay. That idea is novel in human history, but it didn't start yesterday. And so those books go through from like Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Freud, uh, Darwin, and all of these ideas that have been coming through our culture and says, this is just a logical extrapolation of where we've been heading. It was so helpful. This third world thing is by a guy named, uh, his last name is Rife, and it's right out of Carl Truman's book. That's not my idea. Carl Truman's, it's not his either, but he put it in his book, and that was a smart idea for Carl Truman. Again, the first one's the academic. It is a dense read, super great. The other one, I've not read it yet, but because I love the first book so much, and I know the second one is based on it, it's just made for normal people. Um, uh, I know it's also really, really great. Okay, uh, and I'd been saying for a long time, reading the book, they have to write a Cole's Note version of this thing, and then they did, okay? The other one is also a fantastic book. It's short, and I, uh, I have it on my Kindle. Um, it's called Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Al- Albury. He's a British guy that uh, has chosen celibacy because of same-sex attraction, loves Jesus, isn't alone, is living a fulfilled life, and is saying to people, Man, we need to understand these issues better. And he wrote a great book, Is God Anti-Gay? The answer is no, he's not. Um, And he's writing a redo of that that should be out in the next few months that is being updated with some questions that are being, the book's 10 years old now. I read it to prepare for tonight. Winner, winner, winner. You should read that one. And there's, between the chapters, there's some really practical questions like, should I go to a gay marriage? Should I do this? Super great book. Short, anybody could get a lot out of it. Highly recommend a website to recommend, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, gen, uh, gender sorry, uh, centeramericanspellingforfaith.com um, is a ministry of a guy named Preston Sprinkle. I know, that's his real name. And, uh, 
anyways, they do a lot of research on how do Christian parents with homosexual children navigate that world. Uh, they have Bible studies, group studies. Uh, man, hey, Ivan, our young adults should do one of those studies from, uh, from that ministry. Great stuff. Articles aplenty. Podcast to listen to. You should listen to it. Um, my only caveat of I like Preston Sprinkle. There's a couple theological ideas that I'm not sure we're on board, but they're not salvation issues and nothing revolving around uh, faith, sexuality, or gender. I, I don't agree with him on hell, but that's a whole other topic uh, for another day. But all of the stuff that I've read on that website about Gender, sexuality has been so great and edifying. I just want to encourage you that those things exist out there, and the list could go on. The particular list that I would encourage are faithful Christians that are dealing with same-sex attraction, that have written books, wrote blogs. Like, if you're going to go to anybody, ask them about these issues. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, she was a lesbian professor, came to Jesus, is now married, has children, these sorts of things. Another lady, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, many of you, she's got great YouTube videos on stuff, um, and others. Like this, it, Sometimes we just don't even know that that group exists. Because we're so awkward talking about sexuality, we don't know that there are believers that are solid that are saying, you can do this. Another guy, Beckett Cook, another uh, great podcast, and another guy, uh, Christopher Ewan, has a great book. I haven't read it, but I've heard him speak, and I've heard him on podcasts that I listen to. Uh, and, but anyways, he had a praying mom. Shout out to praying moms. Read. Him and his mom wrote a book together as she prayed for him as he was living a homosexual lifestyle and she kept praying. Sometimes we just don't talk about this. And our culture would say, those sad, repressed Christians. But what are those Christians saying? We found life in Jesus and he is worth every single sacrifice. Your cross to carry may not be that, but following Jesus requires a cost. And so again, as we graciously talk about this topic, uh, let's not put it in some separate strange class. Everybody's dealing with something. And so let's do it in love and grace. Amen.